Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out NewDealLeaders.org to see what I'm talking about. If you want to understand why the divisions between the political parties and Americans themselves seem to be growing larger, you need to look at the work of today's guest, Harvard Professor of Government Ryan Enos. He's the author of The Space Between Us, a groundbreaking book about partisan segregation of our communities and our states. When Democrats and Republicans live apart, creating their own laws, cultures, and lives, the ability to make lasting impact and coherent policies is greatly reduced. We talk about why it's happening, the implications of political segregation, and what it means in upcoming elections. Check out ryandenos.com for more about this vital research. Enjoy. Professor Ryan Enos, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It is wonderful to be speaking with you today. Thanks. I'm very pleased to be here. I'm excited to have you because I got to say, I've heard a lot of speakers, read a lot of papers over the past four or five years about the political polarization that's happening in our country. And I think you have one of the most insightful and thoughtful and statistically important analysis. And so can you talk to us a little bit about what you see in terms of partisan segregation and why that matters? Yeah, thanks. I'm I'm happy to do that. And it's nice of you to say it's important because of course there's so many people that have been thinking about this because it is an important issue and I'm I'm glad to have contributed to it a bit. My particular angle on it with all this concern about polarization is to think about how geography contributes to that. So geography is something that I've studied more largely in terms of things like racial segregation and the segregation of ethnic groups in the, across the United States and across the world and what we took up in the last few years is thinking about what we can learn about how Democrats and Republicans are separated from each other in space and in geography and how that might affect our politics. And so the interesting thing about partisans is, and voters is you, you know exactly where they live in the United States. It's in the United States, we don't always have a lot of data on individuals for various reasons, but voters we do, and we know exactly where they live. And so we took every voter in the United States and we looked exactly where they lived and we mapped out how close they lived to people that shared their party or people that didn't share their party. So we could take a Republican and say, if you look at their nearest neighbors, how many of those are Democrats? You could take a Democrat and do the same thing, ask how many of them are Republicans, how many of them are Democrats? And we could do this for everybody and everywhere. And we essentially calculated the exposure of every voter in the United States to people from the other party. In the same way, we might think of the exposure of people across racial groups in the sense that we have something we often are concerned about as citizens and social scientists is how often does a white person in the United States, how often are they exposed to somebody of a different race, like a black person, for example. And so we did that for partisans. 
And what we found, and I think this is something that is important for thinking about the state of polarization, is we found that Democrats and Republicans are very separated from each other. So there's about one in three voters in the United States lives in in what we might consider to be extreme levels of segregation, where they have very little exposure to people from the other party. And then on the very extreme level, if you look at, for example, Democrats who actually happen to be more segregated than Republicans, the Democrats, the modal Democrat, the most typical Democrat in the United States, has virtually no exposure to Republicans, where about nine out of the 10 people that they see in terms of their residential environment, people they see that they live around are other Democrats. And so there's a lot of people out there that really don't have any residential exposure, at least to people from the other party. There's so much to dive into here. And I should say the title of your book is The Space Between Us, which I thought brilliantly captured both the physical geography and in many ways, the ideological gaps that so many of us feel. And look, I'm from Santa Cruz, California. And so I am certainly living in a partisan segregated community in that there are very few Republicans. Right. I mean, I I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, so I'm right there with you. It's uh, (laughs) pretty hard for me to find at least somebody that admits to be a Republican around here. So do you have a sense, let's get to the basics of why is this happening and how long has it been happening? Yeah, well, that's hard to know on both those counts. So w- there are a few things we do know that I can tell you. And like in everything in social science, there's a lot of uncertainty about these things. And it's always something that requires more research. But we can see this on broad levels. If you look at things like entire counties, for example, we do know that the voting in those places has become more sorted, more homogenous over time. So Counties that used to be kind of split between Democrats and Republicans are now becoming increasingly one or the other. And you can see that nationwide, that trend has been headed that direction for about four decades now. And we can see that trend going. We can even see when it comes to the type of individual level analysis with individual people and looking at how sorted they are within their residential environment. We don't have the ability to look as far back, like four decades, because we don't have that kind of data available. But even looking back about 10 or 15 years at this point, because that is the data we do have available to us, that even over that 10 or 15 year period, that segregation has been increasing, that we see Democrats and Republicans more sorted away from each other. And so the question is, why is that happening? Why do we see this segregation increasing? And this is hard to know. And we often, because we use the word segregation, we often want to go to the kind of analogy of something like racial segregation, where we know that the state played a role in this, that there were laws that segregated people, and that just something like rank prejudice would often cause segregation, where a person would say, I don't want to live near those types of people and would move. And and for a while, that was a socially acceptable thing to do. It's not clear that that's a good analogy, right, in this case. You know, you won't find too many people, maybe this is increasing, unfortunately, but you won't find too many people that would just say, I'm not going to live near somebody of the other party. There's some research on this, and it actually that ranks pretty low in terms of why people choose where to live. And you can imagine why. Most of us, especially if you're a parent, for example, you care about your kids going to good school, you care about things like the safety of your neighborhood, you care that you can buy the kind of house you want to buy. And those are going to rank a lot more highly than in terms of how you sort to where you live than the partisanship of your neighbors. So so we have some pretty good evidence that that's a pretty low ranking thing in terms of why people choose to where they live. 
So what is it then? What is causing people to segregate? Well, I think increasingly, one of the things we can see is that it has to do with people sorting along other forces, things like the fact that geography is becoming correlated with things like education and occupation, and the parties are also becoming correlated with that. So increasingly, as the parties divide along things like education, and increasingly as people with college degrees and higher degrees, professional and graduate degrees, increasingly as they live in urban areas and in a certain number of urban areas, that those places are becoming more and more democratic. And then that's going to tend to have knock-on effects that then people that want to enter those areas that are going to sort into them because of a certain lifestyle are going to be more likely to adopt that partisanship too. So something we've seen over the last 10 years as partisan segregation has increased is one of the sources of it, perhaps the most important source, is just as people enter the electorate, if you will, as if they, when they register to vote for the first time, either because they turned 18 or because they became a citizen or because maybe they decided that politics was something they wanted to be involved in, they're more likely to enter with the partisanship of the people in the area they live than perhaps they were once upon a time. So you could imagine somebody registering as a voter in Santa Cruz or in Cambridge or in some other heavily democratic place, they're going to be very likely to also register as a Democrat. And perhaps once upon a time, when they're actually Republicans in Santa Cruz, people that entered the electorate could say, well, I can see myself being a Republican in Santa Cruz, and they would register as a Republican. But that happens less and less now. People enter the electorate and they adopt the partisanship of their neighbors. And it's not clear how much of this is going to go on now, how much of this is going on, but very consistent with a lot of what we know about just the way humans behave is that the more and more one-sided a place becomes, the more homogenous it becomes, the less likely people are to want to be a minority there. And, and that's a very understandable human reaction in many ways for a lot of different reasons. People want to be around people like them and they feel comfort in that. So you can imagine as places become more segregated, the people that once, let's say you're a Democrat, once upon a time, you could live around 60% Republicans or around 70% Republicans, and you're, you're kind of okay with that. As it becomes 80 or 90% Republican, you maybe are not okay with that. And you're going to find a reason to move towards people that are more like you. Maybe not people that share the same partisanship is what you're thinking, but people that share the same lifestyle and the same values maybe. And if you have that opportunity, you might make that move. Not everybody does have that opportunity. That type of sorting might be just among the people that can afford it, which isn't everybody in the country. And that's important to keep in mind when you have these conversations. But some people that can sort on those things, they might sort on it as these patterns become more extreme. And I, I guess let's dive into that. And I wonder, I take your point that people segregate or people choose their place they're going to be in part for educational or economic opportunities, safety all kinds of other reasons that partisan leanings may be not the primary choice. I wonder if the Hobbes decision and the other subsequent legislation around abortion changes that equation a little bit. And in other words, I, I talked to a woman here recently who was thinking about moving from California to Ohio, but said she couldn't because she didn't feel like there was going to be access to reproductive rights in that state. And so that then impacted her her move. Yeah, it, it's a very interesting question and one that I think we could think is going to impact people and maybe is going to impact these larger patterns of segregation, at least on the state level. A lot of the segregation we observe is even within states and even within cities. 
But certainly segregation across states could increase as there's meaningful differences between these states due to some of the decisions that state legislators are making and that the courts are allowing them to make, right? And, and you can see these moving in different directions. So just within the last year, increasingly, states are not able to regulate things like gun ownership. Large portions of that have been taken out of the hands of states. And so you'll see places like New York, the gun laws in New York and let's say Texas have moved closer together, right? And at the same time, the access to reproductive rights or the decisions to make laws about reproductive rights has been given back to the states. And so you'll see places like Texas and New York moving further apart. And what you might wonder about is if trends like that, perhaps in both directions, whether for the people that can, and again, not everybody can. And they, I, you know, I just emphasize that because it's important to keep in mind that most Americans don't have the ability just to pick up and move necessarily based on lifestyle choices. But for people that can and people that make these decisions and are aware of them, those are really material things. Whether or not a woman has control over her own body is a materially, of course, consequential thing for people's lives and has serious effects on their well-being and their whole future. And so you would believe for somebody that has that kind of information and is making a choice that that's something they might think about and something they might think about for their children. And it would affect where they want to live. So we don't have the data on it, but you don't have to have a very wild imagination to believe for some people that kind of thing is going to make a difference. And the thing I would say about that is this goes back to the point I was making earlier, which is that doesn't have to matter for everybody for it to contribute to patterns of segregation that can accelerate over time. So imagine there's a small portion of the population that reacts to things like the Dobbs decisions and says, well, I'm a college educated person and I think reproductive rights are important. And I graduated from college and I have a job offer in Austin, Texas and a job offer in Boston, Massachusetts. Well, I think in Austin, Texas, my reproductive rights aren't going to be protected. And it's also the case that I'm worried about the rate of gun ownership or something there, because that's not something that makes me comfortable. Well, I'm going to take that job in Boston, Massachusetts. And so now Boston becomes 90%, you know, or one other person added there because it goes from 90 to 91% Democrat. And Austin, Texas, because of that move, that person's replaced by somebody that would feel comfortable there. And Austin, maybe not Austin, but <laughs> Travis County or the area around there, um, or no, Travis is Houston, sorry. The surrounding area of Austin ticks down from whatever, 60% Democrat to 59% Democrat. And those trends will accelerate on each other. We're now the marginal Republican in Boston, as we would say, given the choice, might move to Texas. And the marginal Democrat in Texas, because that place is becoming more and more Republican, might choose to move to Massachusetts given the choice. And then people that choose to register there will be influenced to register with those parties. And each thing like that can contribute to itself. And these sort of once that difference is recognized, these patterns of segregation, we don't know, but there's a lot of reason to believe based on what we know about segregation that they might increase over time and might become something that's really a meaningful part of people's lives and are something that make these places really recognizably different. Yeah, I mean, I think to your point, I was speaking to a, a mayor of a blue city in a red state, and I was saying, I think there's a lot of Californians, especially during the pandemic, they were moving to that state. Is, is your state heading to being more purple? And she said, exactly the opposite. You're sending mm -hmm. us your most conservative people that make our conservative people look like moderates. 
So <laughs> you're actually, all these Californians are actually hardening the political divide in our state where you have this. That's really this interesting. Yeah, it makes sense. That's very interesting, but it makes sense. People told the same story, for example, around California, you know, this question of why California becomes so blue. And again, you know, nobody knows for sure. And it's multi-causal like everything is. But one idea is that when California started to move to the left, that a lot of Republicans in Orange County, for example, moved to Texas. And that had this pattern of it didn't make any place more purple. It made Texas more red and it made California more blue. So there's, yeah, we can point to a lot of examples like that. So two questions follow. The first one is more of an intermediate question, which is many people will say, well, I'm declined to state. I'm an independent. I don't affiliate with any party. I can live anywhere. How do they fit into your model? So it is, of course, true that for a lot of people, these questions of partisanship aren't as important as they are for people that may be interested in listening to a podcast like this, right? And for those of us that are very interested in politics, it's always important for us to remember that most people are not like us, right? <laughs> so, and, and it's an easy thing to forget, but it's important. I always tell my students this, right? That they and us, we have strong partisan allegiances and we have strong ideological positions and we care about politics and we can imagine it affecting our lifestyle. You know, when as a Democrat, and I, you know, I felt this like for a long time, I knew where I would drive out of Boston before I would see a Trump sign. And I always felt like a little something in my body when I saw that Trump sign, like something would go off in my mind and I would feel a reaction to it. And most people can drive by a political sign and not feel anything, right? Because politics just isn't an important part of their life in the way it is, an important part of the way they think in the way it is for a lot of us that care a lot about it. So that's always important to keep in mind. Now, there's two things we can say about that, though, right? One is, despite the fact that a lot of people are independent, sometimes even people that do care about politics, a lot of people are independents, that those people still have what we might describe as a partisan allegiance. And this is something we can see really strongly in data from years of social science research, that being an independent is more of a social signal than it is an actual voting pattern. And so about 90% of people that are registered or independents vote from one party consistently over the other. So 90% of people that say they're independents either vote just like Democrats or vote just like Republicans, and they're sort of independents in name only, if you will. And so what we do in terms of research is we work hard to identify who those people are. We have various statistical techniques for sort of imputing their partisanship, for example. And we feel pretty comfortable saying that they are Democrats or Republicans in practice. And we have pretty good evidence for that being consistent with the way they vote and perhaps even the way they think about the other party. And so that's always important to keep in mind. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are going to wear partisanship on their sleeve and put a sign up for a party or something, put a sign up for a candidate and perhaps contribute to the partisan environment in the same way. And, and so we always have to keep that in mind. The other thing I would say about this is when it comes to things like partisan segregation mattering, this is where we have to think about how one's worldview and one's lifestyle choices are caught up in partisanship. So it might be that you're an independent and you say, I don't affiliate with a party, but often we don't think that this stuff matters because somebody has a sign for Biden or Trump or something in their yard but that they act a certain way and behave a certain way in a way that people recognize. This is something we're trying to actively research, by the way, to say, when you see somebody, do you know what their politics are? And for a lot of people, they might not, 
But for a lot of people, they might. They might look at something like a Prius or a pickup truck or something like that and say, I can impute that person's partisanship in my mind. I can guess about the way they think and the way they behave. And as those things become increasingly important for Americans, that we sort of think that one's worldview is meaningful and maybe take cues on that from people, that even the independents might react to that kind of stuff, that they might feel that they want to live around people that are like them or not around people that are different from them. And that might shape our partisan geography as well. Absolutely. I might tell my students all this all the time when we're going through some of these issues and they say they're declined to state and they don't affiliate. And I'm like, well, what kind of toothpaste do you use? And they use Tom's of Maine. What kind of car do you drive? Do you drive a Prius? <laughs> do you have a yeah. refillable water bottle and what stickers are on it? And it's like, yep. it's pretty easy, pretty quickly to see where they land. And, and yeah, you're 100%. right. And they're signaling yeah. others exactly where they land. Yeah. Well. And that's right. Like it was somebody should do the study of toothpaste affiliation and partisanship. I think that'd be, that'd be a good one. But that's 100% true. There are some responses to that that smart people give once in a while, like the political scientist Andrew Gilman will often point out that these lifestyle differences are really between parties are really the choice of the wealthy, for example, where people that can afford it pay extra money to buy the Tom's of Maine toothpaste. And among a large segment of the population, everybody shops at Walmart and doesn't get Tom's of Maine there, but everybody chooses the same toothpaste because they don't have the luxury of spending extra money on those things. And so, you know, even students at Harvard and and at Santa Cruz and places like that, they, of course, are reflective of that population that can make these choices. But what I think is important is that as these choices are made by people that can afford it, they tend to start to spill over into other populations. And eventually this type of segregation can kind of happen to everybody. Maybe we haven't seen this yet, but we can imagine it could happen even to among the people that aren't the leaders in it and aren't the people that it's so important to that they're going to choose it. It's going to happen to everybody eventually, or it could. Well, as you pointed out, right? Like there's a tipping point that once a majority of your community is feeling and acting a certain way, there's a human nature to either say, I'm going to join (laughs) or I'm going to leave. And so it becomes self-perpetuating. Yeah, that's correct. There's well-validated models of this. For example, there's the famous economist Thomas Schilling used to talk about this in terms of things like racial segregation and talk about how segregation can happen because of a whole bunch of individual decisions. It doesn't have to take the intervention of a law or something. And of course, when it came to racial segregation, there were laws that accelerated that, but it also had to do with lots and lots of individual decisions people were making. And you could understand how that same thing could happen in terms of things like partisanship. And again, we're not there. We're not at that point where it's accelerated to the point where everybody's segregated from all what we understand about humans, about human nature, from years of social science research on this, the conditions are available for it to happen if these identities are important enough for people and if segregation keeps happening. So can I ask, there's two responses to this, which is one, is an, uh uh-oh, we are segregating ourselves and therefore we become less empathetic to the other positions, there's less room for compromise, we can see the impacts on the political system. The other one is, we've been a fighting married couple for a long time, maybe it's time we all just get a divorce. And if you want certain kinds of policies, you should move to Alabama. If you want other kinds of policies, move to Massachusetts. And then within that, there'll be, as you say, to the neighborhood level, What are the implications of this segregation for policy and for the future of our political institutions? 
Yeah, and that's a really good question, and I think a crucial one. And I think that, like everything, there's a couple different ways to look at it. And one is, as you mentioned, in the abstract, we can think that there's things about people being sorted by their ideology that's desirable, right? Where it, it essentially makes representation something that works really well, right? There's even people, serious people, that have argued that gerrymandering of congressional districts actually makes a lot of sense. You know, a lot of us see gerrymandering and we say, well, that's terrible. But if you take a step back, you can say, well, that means that people are really well represented, right? That the person that's there on average, the person that's the representative there on average is going to represent the ideology of the voters there a lot better than they would in a more mixed district. Now, we know there's other problems with gerrymandering, but it's not to say, but this is just to say that there is reasons to believe that that has benefits as well. And so there's that side of the coin. And you could say, again, people have a lot of reasons they move places, but in the abstract, if everybody could live in a place where everybody agreed with them, the policies would reflect their preferences in a better way. And they might be happier to the extent that being happy is that means that there's policies that we agree with and laws that we agree with. And some of those have really material consequences. So if we're a person that believes strongly in the right to bear arms, we might want to be in a state that really protects that. And if we're a person that doesn't want guns in our lives and our public sphere, we might want to be in a place that tries to regulate those more heavily. And so there's really reasonable things people can say about that. Now, the flip side, of course, and I think this is the part that we really have to focus on, is that ultimately, no matter how much we balkanize ourselves and how much we segregate ourselves, we still have to come together in the larger polity, in the larger public sphere. And this is something that a lot of my research has focused on, is about how segregation it not only divides us geographically, but it divides us psychologically and ultimately socially and makes it harder for us to come together and to do things that we have to do in a democracy and in a representative society. So if Massachusetts is entirely Democrat and if Texas is entirely Republican, that's fine for what they have to do separately. But ultimately, we have to come together to govern and to make decisions together. And if we don't have any overlapping geography, if we don't have shared concerns, then that becomes harder to do. But even more so, the way the psychology of segregation exists, it tends to amplify the differences between us. So in the terms of things like race, for example, it looks like this racial segregation between African-Americans and whites in the United States and among other racial groups, it makes people feel that they're more different from those groups. And it makes it harder for people to do things like cooperate when it comes to making the decisions they have to make together to live in a well-functioning society. And what we should really be worried about is whether or not that same thing could happen to Democrats and Republicans, whether eventually we could say Democrats and Republicans feel like it's impossible for them to get along. It's impossible for them to share space and to make decisions together because under the national government we live under and to share the resources that we live, that we have to share to live in the same country. And, you know, as I keep emphasizing, we're not there yet. We're not at the place where those types of divisions exist. And we're, you know, we're certainly not in the place where we should be making a one-to-one -one comparison between things like partisan segregation and racial segregation in terms of the consequences of it or the knock-on effects of it. But the fact that we're having this conversation means that we can follow this sort of game tree, if you will, down the path from what we know about the increasing fact of segregation towards the consequences of that 
And that that path is alarming and it's something that we should worry about as a country if it does sort of follow itself to its logical conclusion. I agree with you. And it's also problematic because our political institutions don't always reflect the neighborhoods and communities we're in, right? So you have disproportionate representation in the Senate, you have lifetime terms on the Supreme Court, you have gerrymandering. So you have a potential for a lot of tension if there's not cooperation and it's all just who can win in a different election, but you have some unrepresentative wins that could cause real fundamental challenges, I think, to our ability to continue as a country. Sure, absolutely. And it's unfortunate, you know, those are things we think about now, but they're possibilities we have to take into consideration when we think about the future of the country. So turning to elections, I guess I want to dive into one specific element, which is, I think, on the large scale maps showing presidential votes, you see sort of the cities are blue, the rural areas are red, and then everybody fights over the suburbs and the small towns. Do you see that still continuing in the elections and that we're going to have in a couple of weeks and in 2024? Yeah, well, I do. It's interesting because I, I teach a class every two years, or at least that's the pattern because it's the second year I've taught it, but it's about elections. And one of the things we try to do is we forecast the elections. So the students do that. And they're in the process of building these forecasts. And then one of the things we always do is we step back and we ask how did these patterns that we find how are those different than these patterns we've seen in the past? And what I think we're going to see and what we saw when we did that same exercise in 2020 is that these geographic differences between places, this geographic sorting by presidential vote and congressional vote have accelerated where places that are rural are becoming more and more Republican and places that are urban are becoming more and more Democrat. And I just... I don't see a lot to suggest that we're going to see differences with that in 2022. I think it will play out that way very exactly because we just haven't seen anything to show that we're going to break those geographic patterns that are becoming more and more distinct. So if these patterns are becoming more distinct, there's a debate always about, do you try to to move to the middle to bring people along? Do you try to mobilize your base and bring new voters into the party or into the election. If partisanship is hardening to some extent, does that point operatives into a certain direction? Potentially. And I think that the conventional, I don't know if that's quite the word I want to use, but I think that the wisdom on that, the conventional wisdom, if you will, in recent years has been that what this drives us for towards is just mobilization. And there is some reason to believe that, right? That you want to mobilize people to be registered and you want to mobilize them to vote and they're going to stick with your party and that's how you're going to win elections. And there's some truth to that. But of course, mobilization has always been an important part of campaigns. And and I think what is unfortunate, perhaps, about that focus is it has downplayed the importance of persuasion. And I mean that in two ways. One is from a campaign tactic where we know that voters can be persuaded. So partisanship has perhaps hardened and there's less people that switch between parties, but there's still a lot of people that do when you consider over the whole scope of a country that we can see these in the, on the high level. And some of them seem like kind of extreme switches in some ways, but there are voters and not an inconsequential number 
that voted for Barack Obama and turned around and voted for Donald Trump, right? And those people exist. And something persuaded them to do that. And so people do change their minds and they're not an inconsequential number of people. And in some ways, they're kind of the people that are going to win or lose elections. And we can see from evidence in political science and elsewhere that persuasion is possible. It's not easy. And it doesn't mean everybody's going to be persuaded, but certainly there's persuadable tactics that campaigns can do. And I think the other side of that, besides just from a tactical perspective, is I think just in terms of thinking about the society we want to live in, I think that we're obligated somewhat as democratic citizens, and certainly people are seeking office, we're obligated to try to meet people in the middle. And I know that people don't always like that term. And I don't necessarily mean it means you're going to compromise on your values or compromise on legislation that's important for people. But it means that you'll try to engage with the other side and to find common things that you share with them. And part of that is through persuasion. And, you know, if we live in a society that is essentially like who can ever mobilize a larger army for their side, not who can find things in common, I don't think that's a recipe for a successful society. And so I think in terms of thinking of our people are running for office, not just as people trying to win, but as people that become potentially statesmen and people that have an ethical obligation to society, I think they have an obligation to try to persuade and to try to engage with the other side and understand how they can bring them into their way of seeing things. Yeah, it feels from a governing point of view, like we're stuck in this cycle of you mobilize the base, you get a short-term win, you enact measures that don't have much broad support, and people, if you can, and often you can't, and then when people are dissatisfied, the opposition's able to mobilize their base and undo that and maybe pass something. But to build something lasting over generations, which any meaningful policy is going to do, there has to be some level of broad-based support for it. And you can't get it through this tactical partisanship. Yes. Yes, I agree. So what do you think is the next step in understanding this phenomenon? In other words, what's your next book going to be about? And what should <laughs> we all be looking out for when we're watching these election results on this November and in 2024? Yeah, well, let me start with the second one is, I do think this question you asked about whether these patterns of geography are going to continue, I think that that is something we should really look for. And I have my speculation on that, that they will, but I'm not 100% sure, right? And, I, and so I think that seeing just how much they're continuing, or whether we see, for example, Democrats holding fast in rural areas and in exurban areas, I think that's really important to the future of this country for a lot of reasons. And on the flip side, I think Republicans actually getting some meaningful presence in cities is important. And so in some ways, I think that was the promise in many ways of Joe Biden as the standard bearer for, for Democrats was somebody that had a broad cross-cultural and cross-geographic appeal. And I would hope that we'd see more of that. I'm not hopeful that we will, but I think that those are the types of things we want to look for if, to understand more about how this is playing out in our electoral politics. I think in terms of the larger question, in terms of research and where that's going and what we understand about this, is it is connecting these patterns of segregation to what that does to our relationships with our fellow citizens. And that's the part we don't understand very much, but in many ways, I think this is what's most consequential. Because as I mentioned in passing, a big thing I focus on in my research and other people have, and something I feel at this point that we understand very well is that segregation is not good 
for society when groups are segregated from each other along meaningful distinctions. And what I mean by that is, you know, you don't have to be like a PhD in political science to understand this. We just casually look around and we say, well, places where Christians and Muslims are separated and where racial groups are separated or where people are separated by language, those are societies that have had a lot of problems and they're places that have been subject to a lot of strife. And so we know the consequences of segregation because it allows people to behave towards their fellow human beings in a way that is unfortunate and can lead to really big problems. And so we don't know for sure whether that is what the consequences of things like partisan segregation are going to be. But there's a lot of concern that these identities of partisanship are becoming important to people, that they're things that have analogs when it comes to things like race or religion. And I think we should be really cautious with saying that, because I think that there's a lot of reasons to believe that religion is going to be a lot more important to people than partisanship, and that prejudice around race and religion and such has been and will be more important than partisanship. But there's still something we should be concerned about, that partisanship is a meaningful identity to people. And if it is, then we don't have to look far for the consequences of segregation. And that's something that I'm actively trying to look into and to understand if partisanship actually has, when it comes to this, the geographic segregation of partisanship, if it has these same kind of consequences that we've come to understand for the, the segregation of things like racial groups and religious groups and other groups like that. Fascinating. I mean, I think it feels, I, th- I think you're right that the evidence needs to be studied and modeled, but it certainly feels <laughs> that way. And understanding it before we get too far down the road, I th- feels like a critical mission. Yeah, I agree. 100%. Well, thank you for joining us today. As always, I cannot recommend to listeners your book enough and to look at your work and make sure that you're following him and the many institutes and research efforts that Ryan Enos is leading, because it gives us a good insight into where we are and where we will be going. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.